So this afternoon, many of you will gather around a television set with family and friends, and if you are a committed Christian, if you're a real follower of Jesus, you will be cheering on the San Francisco 49ers. And if the game is close and you are on the edge of your seat and you and your family and friends are kind of like rallying together for the team and then they come from behind and they win the game, you likely will jump up out of your seats and you will start jumping around the living room and saying something like this, we won, we won, we won, which is a lie. (laughs) Because of course you didn't win. You sat on the couch and you ate potato chips and drank bad beer. And um, you were a spectator. It was those players that won. Now, I was thinking about this uh, distinction between a spectator and a player. And I think oftentimes in the local church, we can also see that distinction. You know, there are people that are players. They are engaged, they serve, and they give, and they, they, they're active, and they are all in in the life of a local church. But then there's another group, and they're the spectators. Sometimes they're even the critics, and uh, maybe not engaged. But of course, God's desire for us as a community is that we would all be players when it comes to the mission of God, when it comes to our engagement in the local church. You know, they've said that um, oftentimes in the local church, what's operative is the 80-20 principle. That's where you have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. But as we move forward in the weeks and in the months ahead, we desire 100% participation in the life of this church by us all doing the work of God. Because, of course, there is power in collective action, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's a power when we who are many in the body of Christ with many gifts and many resources and many experiences, when we come together collectively and we act as one, there is power. So there is power in collective action. But this morning, I don't want to talk to you so much about the power that exists when we collectively act together. I want to talk to you about a more important and a more significant power than any power that exists in this room within the people in the seats. I want to talk to you this morning about the power of God and about our need as a church as we move forward in the next several weeks, in the next several months, in the years ahead, to truly more and more become a community that lives in deep dependence upon the power of God to do the work of God among us. And I want us to reflect upon this call that God has put in our lives just to be a people of dependence on his power. I want us to reflect upon that call by drawing your attention this morning just for a few minutes to one of, in my, in my estimation, one of the most interesting and compelling stories in the gospel. And we've been in this series called Defining Moments, and we're looking at these defining moments in the life of the disciples where Jesus kind of brings them to a place where he teaches them something significant and transformative, and it really changes the moments that they live after that defining moment. And this morning, we're going to look together at one of those defining moments, and this one comes not when the disciples are in a place of success, This comes in the midst of the disciples' failure. 
And the story is found in Mark chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me there, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 14. So where we pick up our story, Jesus is descending from the Mount of Transfiguration. He had taken Peter and James and John with him on that occasion. He transfigured before them, manifested his glory. And where we pick up the story, Jesus is on his way down from the mountain. And he arrives from this mountaintop experience and he meets an absolute disaster. You know, Jesus has been gone for about three hours. In the short of that short span of time, uh, everything goes to the pot, and there's a complete mess down at the bottom of the mountain. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 14. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately, all of the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him and throws him down, he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So here's the scene. The disciples are arguing with some religious leaders. They're locked in this horrible debate. And there's this young man on the ground, and he's sick, and he's suffering from seizures and demonic oppression. And there's a great crowd around them gawking. And then there's this poor father, and he's desperate because his son has been sick for a very long time. And he's been harassed by a demon, and he's mentally ill, and he's hurting himself. And he's got what looks like epilepsy. And, and, and the disciples, are there instead of helping this man, they failed and now they're in an argument with the religious leaders. And in some sense, this is this whole scene is a picture of the church at its worst. You know, here we are fighting with one another, arguing about theology, and meanwhile, there's people on the outside desperate for help. And this is the situation Jesus walks into. And I just imagine Jesus walking up to his disciples and he's like, really, I'm gone for three hours. You know, what am I going to do with you guys? And, and he sees this whole scene and Jesus says, what, what is going on here? And I just imagine his disciples kind of looking at Jesus sheepishly, not wanting to say anything, not really knowing what to say. They're quiet. But helpfully, the man who needed help pipes up, and he answers Jesus' question. And someone from the crowd said to him, Jesus, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered, answers in exasperation, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed, convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked this father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... 
have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, I love Jesus' response, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and here he expresses something on behalf of us all. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd running together, he rebuked the unclean spirits. And he says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And so Jesus speaks, and before Jesus, the darkness trembles. And the demon is driven out. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. And so you have this incredible story of, of faith and doubt and of the power of Jesus. You know, it turns out that not everything depends upon the strength of our faith. Jesus acts in the face of the darkness out of his own mercy and compassion, and he heals this man, and he delivers this man, and he, and he, he rescues the disciples from their exorcism fail. But notice what happens next, and this is really what I want to draw your attention to. After this whole experience of the disciples' failure, of their arguing with the religious leaders, of Jesus coming and succeeding where they had failed, Jesus takes them in a closed-door debriefing meeting of the whole experience. And look what it says in verse 27. But Jesus, or verse 28, it says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, So Jesus, why the fail? Like, why could we not cast the demon out? And notice what Jesus says to him. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And I want us just to reflect for a few minutes together on what Jesus says to the disciples, because this is incredibly important. It was defining for them, and it really should be defining for us as we move forward together as a church to seek to participate in the mission of God. And the very simple kind of low-hanging fruit kind of principle that is drawn out for us in this text is simply this. If we are going to participate in the mission of Jesus, if we are going to be on mission with Jesus, here's what Jesus says, we must pray. If we're going to be on mission with Jesus, we must pray. We must pray because when we engage in mission with Jesus, we are participating in the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God advances, it advances on occupied territory. You know, uh, truth be told, um, I don't know anything about football. The last time I watched a Super Bowl was about 20 years ago. I had to look up online yesterday who was even playing in the Super Bowl for my introduction this morning. <laughs> but one thing I have appreciated about football is this, is it is all about conquering territory. It's all about advancing the ball down the field, gaining yardage, taking the opponent's territory. And this is really what, ha what happens. You know, the, 
the God's kingdom of love and justice and healing is breaking into this world and it's advancing into new places, into new hearts, into new lives. But as it advances, it advances upon occupied territory and it does not take that territory without a fight. And so as we engage in the mission of Jesus in this community and in our neighborhoods and in our families, we do so against an opponent who is opposing us at every move. And so we need to move forward in deep dependence upon Jesus. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. He says, look, he says, this kind doesn't come out by anything except for prayer. And it's as if Jesus says to him, he says, look, disciples, your failure, like the reason why you failed, it wasn't because you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing. No, Jesus earlier gave them an assignment to carry on his work in the world. They are called to advance the kingdom of Jesus' light and his life into every sphere of human existence and to drive out the darkness. So they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Their problem was not that they lacked technique. You know, oftentimes in the ancient world, it was believed that if you just had the right technique, if you just knew the right incantations and spells, if you kind of got it down, if you went to all of the right church conferences and you read the right church literature and you got all the technique down, then you could drive out the demons. But Jesus says it wasn't a lack of technique. And it also wasn't a lack of education, you know, they were arguing with the scribes and maybe they were arguing about who knows more and what was the right thing to do according to the Bible. But Jesus says it wasn't a lack of education. It wasn't a lack of technique. It wasn't a lack of skill. Jesus says the problem was is that this kind is way, way, way beyond you. The problem is, disciples, is that you don't have what it takes you know, maybe like many of you when I was a little kid, you know, I received that message from my parents. You can do anything you want to do if you just set your mind to it. Anybody teach your children that? Anybody believe that when you were a child? Now, when I heard that when I was in elementary school, I was a basketball player. <laughs> and I wanted to be in the NBA. But you know, no matter what, I didn't have it in me. I just don't have what it takes to make it to the NBA. Like it is well, well beyond me. And what Jesus is telling his disciples, what he's telling you and I here, is he's saying, look, you are engaged in work that goes well beyond your power. What, what I am calling you to do is way, way, way beyond you. And I don't want to be rude, but you don't have what it takes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do our best with what we got. You know, of course, Jesus wants us to work heartily as unto him. 
And as a pastor, I need to work hard in sermon preparation and in seeking to study God's word and to articulate it to you all. And as a church, we need to, we need to do our best to make creative videos and, and make creative literature and to uh, renovate our facility and to have it as good as we can possibly make it for the glory of God. You know, God has not called us to sloppy work. And of course, as parents, you know, we want to study all the literature on parenting and do our best. And as employees, like you want to work hard, like doing your best is of course what God wants you to do. But make no mistake about it, your best is not enough. This work goes well beyond us. It goes well beyond our Bible knowledge. It goes well beyond our technique. It goes well beyond our gifted staff. It goes well beyond what, uh, what a renovated facility will do. Because listen, the work we most want to see happen, a movement of the gospel transformed lives, people freed from their addictions and, and all their slaveries to see people's hearts and minds and lives radically transformed. This is all work that you and I cannot do on our own. And of course, you know this as a parent, if, if you're a parent, you know, you can do a lot with your kids, you can train them, you can educate them, but you have no control over your child's heart. And you know, you know this as a, if you're married, like you, you can't change your spouse. You know, it is difficult for you to even change your spouse's spouse, isn't it? But listen, the, the work we most long to see happen in the world goes way, way, way beyond our skills and our technique and our education. It is way past all of our resources. But here is the good news of this text, is that the end of human resources come the resources of God. At the end of human resources come the resources of God. And the place we tap into the resource of God, the power of God, is in regular, dependent prayer, where we turn regularly and again and again on our knees to God and say, God, I need you to come and work and do what I cannot do. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon that he preached on this text, he was a great preacher from uh, the early part or the mid-20th century in England, and I have a collection of sermons of his called Revival. And in one of those sermons, he preaches a sermon on this text. And I read this 20 years ago, and I have not gotten away from it in the last 20 years. I keep going back to it. But in this sermon, he says this. He says, we have got to realize that however great this kind is, the power of God is infinitely greater that what we need is not more knowledge or more understanding or more apologetics or more reconciliation of philosophy and science and religion and all modern techniques. No, we need a power that can enter into the souls of men and women and break them and humble them and make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. And so as we move forward, if we are going to move forward in a way that is truly participating in the mission of Jesus, 
We must pray. We have to be people that are marked by regular dependent prayer. It's interesting, in some of your Bibles, it says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer, and then it couples that with and fasting. And there's some debate as to whether or not that was in the original text or it crept in later, and uh, there's some debates. But I think the reason why prayer and fasting are kept together is think for a moment about what fasting is. Now, for the record, I hate fasting. I hate fasting because I love to eat. I love food. I'm like a foodie, and one of the great joys I have in life is eating. And so I hate fasting except for two or three hour blocks of time. (laughs) Because I need food. I need food to be nourished. I need food to be happy. I need food to not get cranky. I need food for energy. I I need food. But what you train yourself when you fast is you train yourself in the truth that you need something more than food. You remind yourself in our flat, secular, secular age that wants us to believe that History is nothing more than this endless succession of naturalistic causes and effects. We remind ourselves that no, history and our lives in this world is open to the power and love of God. And what I need more than food to nourish my body is the true and the living God. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we want to commit our own hearts and our lives to you here and now in this place. We commit our church to you here and now in this place. We belong to you, Lord Jesus. You have purchased us. You have redeemed us for yourself. And we pray, oh God, that you would use us for your purposes in this world. God, we long as a church to be used by you, to see people who are far from you meet your son Jesus and be transformed. God, fill us with a power that is outside of us to do this work. Be at work in those around us and may you do above and beyond all that we could ask or think both in our lives and in and through our church so that you could be glorified in us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.